following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information about Trinity Grace Church, go to www.trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. As many of you know, we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark here on Sunday mornings, and the hope is to work our way through this Gospel up through Easter Sunday. And you'll likely know that Mark is one of the four accounts that we have in the Bible of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the second book in your New Testament, but it's believed to be the oldest of the four gospel accounts. And as we read the gospel of Mark, what we get is a clear picture of who Jesus is, of what is important to him, and of what he came to do in this world and in our lives. And one of the things that stands out throughout the Gospels as you read it, especially the Gospel of Mark, is that Jesus, as he begins to grow in popularity and his ministry begins to take on more power and influence, he begins clashing with what Mark calls the religious leaders of the day. These leaders are identified throughout Mark as teachers of the law and Pharisees. Teachers of the law and Pharisees. And if you grew up around the Bible, maybe you grew up in church, then you likely have a pretty negative view when you hear the phrase Pharisees and teachers of the law. In fact, if you grew up going to Sunday school as a child, normally these characters are cast in a pretty negative light. They're seen as the bad guys in the Gospels, kind of dark figures that walk around in cloaks, always out to get Jesus. But this isn't entirely accurate, this picture that a lot of us have. In fact, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees would have been mostly admired by the people in the first century, especially by people who considered themselves religious. Uh, The Pharisees and religious leaders, they were devout people. They were moral people. They were actually looked up to as models for what it meant to follow God. But they had a lot of really wrong ideas. As we read the Gospels, we find out. And that's why we often see them clashing with Jesus. This morning, we see one of these wrong ideas and how Jesus addresses it. And to see what I mean, you follow along as I read Mark chapter 4, beginning, or Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And skipping down to verse 14, Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they're what defiles a person. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder how many of you have ever tried to read the entire Bible. It's an audacious, audacious goal and one that normally falls under the umbrella of New Year's resolutions. At the beginning of January, if you're like me, lots of Christians decide that this is going to be the year. It's going to be the year that you read the Bible from cover to cover. And so on January 1st, you kind of launch out on your journey with the book of Genesis starting right there at the beginning, and it goes really well. Genesis is a pretty interesting book, and it's got a lot of interesting stories. The only tough parts really are the genealogies that you come upon in Genesis, and you can kind of breeze through those names that are hard to pronounce and get along your way. And then next comes the book of Exodus, and a lot of people make it through the book of Exodus too. And after all, the beginning of the book of Exodus is a page-turner. Movies have been made over the material in this book. And then towards the end of Exodus, it becomes a bit tougher as it begins to describe details about the tabernacle and what the priests are supposed to wear and how they're supposed to sacrifice animals. But you make it through Exodus, even Exodus, you get through that book. And it's the middle of February and life is getting busy and you're feeling great though because you're engaged. Maybe this is the year you think. This is the year that you're going all the way. And then comes Leviticus. Dun, dun, dun. The graveyard of yearly Bible plans is what I call Leviticus. And you might last a few days in that book, maybe even a week if you're really dedicated and have a study Bible, but that's about all anyone can take. Because Leviticus is a book that talks about things that are unusual for us. Things like animal sacrifice and food regulations and clothing material. We get to the book of Leviticus and it feels so foreign, so arcane and irrelevant to where we are today that we stop. And in many ways, this is what this passage that we just read from Mark can feel like. Jesus and the Pharisees are clashing over obscure Old Testament laws. It almost seems like we could just skip this part of the gospel of Mark because it's not really relevant to us today. But the issue that Jesus and the Pharisees are disagreeing over in Mark 7 is more important than you might think. The word that pops up over and over again in this passage is the word defile. And it's really the main term, defile. And it starts as an adjective in this passage, but it ends, it becomes a verb. And the interesting thing is that Jesus never disputes with the Pharisees that people are defiled. That's not the issue. That's a given. People are defiled. The dispute happens between Jesus and the Pharisees over what you do with your defilement. What addresses the problem and what does not? That's the issue here in this passage. Defile can also be translated unclean. 
And to understand the important thing that's being touched on this passage, you've got to know a little bit about the categories of clean and unclean from the Old Testament. So go with me for just a minute, okay? If you check out, I'll call you back, okay? But just two minutes here. In the Old Testament, if you touched anything dead, whether it be an animal or a human being, if you had an infectious disease, whether it's leprosy or boils or legions, if you had a mildew infection in your house, if you ate certain foods like shellfish or pork, you were considered defiled or unclean. If you were defiled or unclean, it meant that you couldn't enter the temple. You, you couldn't be with the community of God's people. You were unfit for relationship with God and with others. That's what it meant to be defiled and unclean in the Old Testament. At its root, it meant that the capacity for relationship was broken. Okay, these categories of being clean and unclean were really just physical aids that were meant to help God's people understand a spiritual reality. Physical aids to help them understand a spiritual reality. And we do this in our lives today. We use physical aids to help us understand spiritual realities. Think about it. Sometimes when you pray, you kneel. Why do you do that? Well, it's a physical aid that's meant to demonstrate spiritual humility. Other times when people receive the benediction at the end of the service, what do they do? They extend their hands to receive the benediction, another physical action that demonstrates the spiritual reality of receiving something, of having open hands to receive. Even today, if you've got a first date, let's say a first date, you're going to get clean, you're going to take a shower, you're going to brush your hair, you might even floss. You know it's serious if you floss, okay? If you're meeting an important person, let's say the boss at your company or the governor of Texas or the mayor of San Antonio, you're going to put on your nicest clothes because it signals the importance of the meeting, the importance of the occasion, the importance of the one that you're about to see. And this is really what's happening with the Old Testament cleanliness laws at the basic level. If you're going to enter God's presence, you've got to be clean. You've got to be clean. You've got to be undefiled. And this is what Jesus and the Pharisees are discussing in Mark chapter 7. How can someone be clean? Or in other words, this is the bottom line. What is it that destroys capacity for relationship with God? The issue at stake here in Mark 7 initially seems irrelevant to us, but when you boil it down to the main issue, it becomes very relevant. How can you have a relationship with God? How can you have a relationship with God? In our passage, we see two different answers to this question. Two different takes on how we can be clean and have a relationship with God. The first option is what we'll call outside-in cleansing. It's the option that comes most naturally to you and me. It's the easiest option, in fact. It's the option that we see the Pharisees take at the beginning of our passage. They believed that relationship with God could be attained by what they did, by how they lived. Like I mentioned earlier, when we think of the Pharisees, we automatically assume that these were the bad guys. But you've got to understand that they started out with good intentions, very good intentions. They started out, in fact, as a reform movement, the Pharisees. They looked around and they said, we're going to put our foot down because they were angry that people did not take the law of God seriously and they weren't obeying God. 
These were men who committed themselves to obedience to God's law. And the Pharisees as a group of people were very meticulous when it came to following God's commands. In fact, they were so meticulous, they were so concerned with following God's commands that they added special rules to God's commands just to make sure they didn't violate any of the actual rules that are found in the Old Testament. It was kind of like a buffer that made sure they didn't get close to even breaking God's law. And it developed into a code that they followed. As an example, it's going to sound silly, but as an example, God commanded that no one work on the Sabbath day to rest on the seventh day. That was a command in God's law. The day was set aside, but the Pharisees, they took this command and they added a buffer just to ensure that they didn't break it. So they forbid, for instance, women from wearing jewelry on the Sabbath because that could be considered carrying a burden. Or they forbid men from spitting on the ground because if they accidentally rub their foot through it, that could be considered making mud, which would have been considered work. Very meticulous, very small. This was the kind of attempts that, G, uh, that the Pharisees made to, to apply real life application. But over time, something happened in them that happens in us. The good idea rose to be equal to God's word. They built up laws upon laws, and it's what Jesus in verse 8 calls human traditions. It's what he's referring to. You see, some of these extra rules in this passage, particularly in verses 3 and 4, where it says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles, human traditions. These guys were focused on the externals. And if externals are your thing, it normally always goes from being a good idea to becoming ultimate. The Pharisees thought that they could earn God's favor by doing the right things. It's what we call legalism in the church, legalism, which is attempting to earn relationship with God by living the right way. The Pharisees thought that they could be clean, that they could have relationship with God if they did all the right things on the outside. We see examples of outside-in cleansing in our own lives all the time. I want you to think about it for a minute. We see it in how we practice Christianity. We see it in the walls of the church. When we tell ourselves that God will love us more if we just stay away from certain things. If I could stay away from gossip or pornography or anger, then God would love me more. It happens when we believe that God will love us more if we read our Bible or if we pray more, or if we served more, or if we gave more, then maybe God's favor would be upon us. And all of these things are good things, but if we believe that these things are going to purify us, are going to make us clean, we're working from the outside in. But we work from the outside in in most areas of our lives, thinking that we can fix our issues with some simple behavior modification. We see this mentality in politics. On both sides of the aisle, thinking that's what is wrong with this world um, are the social structures that are in place. And if we could just get the right people in the office and implement the right laws and the right policies, then things would be good. Outside in mentality. We see this mentality in popular culture. 
thinking that we can make ourselves okay by changing our image, by buying the right clothes, by losing a certain amount of weight, by having the right things in life. If we could just square our lives up with what the culture labels as successful, then we'd be clean. But it never really satisfies because it's an outside-in mentality. We see this search to be clean in the way we work nonstop always working to accomplish the next goal. We see it in the fact that we're scared to disappoint people, living in fear that we'll let people down or that people won't approve of us. We see it in how we're afraid of commitment, scared of letting people know who we really are. All of this is evidence of an outside-in mentality in our lives. If we do enough, then we'll be okay. Then we'll be good enough. Then we'll pass scrutiny but this mentality actually draws a big rebuke from Jesus. We see the rebuke in verses six, seven, and eight, where Jesus says this, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the human traditions quoting the Old Testament back to Old Testament experts. And here Jesus is so hard on the Pharisees because he knows that what they're teaching will never work. The externals will not change us. They might be a good idea, but they don't earn God's love. They don't really change us at the level that we need to be changed. The Pharisees are telling people that if they're good enough, then God will love them. And Jesus knows that that mentality will only lead to more anxiety and exhaustion. And if you're even able to think that you've measured up, it's going to lead to you being a judgmental person because other people don't. We feel great when we think we're measuring up, but we feel horrible. We're completely dejected when it seems like we failed as we live with this outside-in mentality. The Pharisees, in a sense, are putting a burden on people that's too hard to bear, that will never lead to real human flourishing. And so after rebuking the Pharisees, Jesus calls the people to himself. And in verse 14, he explains where defilement really comes from. It's the other option that we have in this passage. It's our second point. We'll call it inside-out cleaning. He touches on it in verse 15. He says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus is saying that the problem of uncleanness, of broken relationship, is much deeper than we assume. The problem of defilement is not an external problem, it's an internal problem. The problem is with our hearts, with what comes out of us, not with what goes into us. And it's important to know, many of you do, that when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about the organ, you know, your heart and your chest. It's an image that refers to the center of a person's being. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about all of who you are, your mind, your emotion, your will. It's the control center of a person's life. And Jesus is saying that it's what comes from our hearts that defiles us, that makes us impure, that makes relationship with God impossible. We see it in verses 20 to 23 where it says, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, adultery, murder, coveting, 
wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Well, Jesus is telling us that the core of the problem that we all have is inside of us. We have hearts that aren't right. And so it doesn't matter what you eat or if you wash your hands or if you clean your pots, if you wear jewelry on the Sabbath or if you spit on the ground, that's just superficial. The the real problem you have goes much deeper than those things. The condition of the human heart is the root of what's wrong, the source of uncleanness. And it's so powerful that if you think that you're going to control it with rules and externals and disciplines and rituals, then you are deluding yourself. Think about it this way. The internet does not insert lust into anyone. Neither school nor pop culture inserts vulgarity into anyone's heart. An antagonistic family member does not insert resentment into someone's heart. The added responsibilities that we all feel as we get older does not insert a neglect of prayer or God's word in our heart. Cultural change does not insert embarrassment over biblical truth in our heart. The success of my peers does not insert coveting into my heart. Now, I'm not saying that environment isn't important. Scripture addresses that. But there's a distinction to be made. Our external environment can entice what's already in the heart of a person. It never inserts it. It provokes and it entices what is already there. And so like the Pharisees, you and I oftentimes build these walls because we think that we're fighting an enemy that's on the outside, but Jesus comes and reminds us that the enemy is actually on the inside. It reminds me of the 2004 movie, The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. I wonder how many of you have seen this movie. It's a movie about an Amish-style community that intentionally lives cut off from the outside world. And the leaders of this community, they try their hardest to keep the culture out and to keep people in leaving, living a pure life. But there's an instance in the movie where a young man with a learning disability who's a part of this community, he becomes jealous and angry at one of his friends over a girl that they both like, and he actually winds up stabbing this friend with a knife. And it's a remarkable scene in the movie because this community thought that they could keep out the evil, that they could keep out what's happening here if they just insulated themselves enough. But what M. Night Shyamalan is saying, that it's not out there. If you've got a group of people in a community, you're going to have this heart malfunction taking place. And it's a picture of what Jesus is trying to communicate in our passage. Our heart's the problem. It's the root cause, a heart failure. All the walls of our righteousness can't help us because the enemy is on the inside. And in order to be made right with God, in order to have a relationship with him, our hearts need to be fixed. We need an inside-out cleansing. And that's the problem because we can't get this type of cleansing on our own. We can't take care of the mess that we find ourselves in because it's a problem With our hearts, everything we touch gets dirty. I've used this illustration before, but it's like when my kids go outside after it rains. 
And because we live in San Antonio, it's either a major drought or a massive monsoon, one or the other. And when it rains in our backyard, we have no grass in our backyard, so it turns into a mud pit. And my kids go outside, and they play in the yard when it rains, and then they come to the door covered in mud from head to toe. Rachel loves it. I hate it. And before they come back into the house, we ask them to clean themselves off to get the mud off of their bodies, off of their feet. And there's a hose and they go out there and the hose gets all muddy and their feet get more muddy and they just basically can't do it. And it's impossible. And in fact, Rachel and I more often than not have to get out there because we're the clean ones and we've got to clean themselves. We've got to clean them up. And so we pick them up and we clean them ourselves. They need someone basically who's not dirty to clean them. They need someone who's not dirty to wash off their dirt. They need someone else to take care of their problem. And in the same way, it's exactly what we need when it comes to our hearts. We need someone who is clean to make us pure because we can't do it on our own. And Jesus is telling us that our problem goes much deeper than we think. We're dirty on the inside, and so there's no hope of us being able to clean ourselves. And while this passage, it's interesting, it does not highlight a cure. Jesus kind of leaves them there. It does not explicitly touch uh, upon how Jesus is going to cure these people, but we get a clue of the cure when he talks to the Pharisees about their obsession with washing in verse 4. I want you to follow me here for a minute. The word Mark uses in this passage for wash is the Greek word baptizo, okay? Where we get our word baptism, obviously. And it's a word that signifies a cleansing, a cleansing. And it's what everyone in this world really wants. If you're honest, you feel it in your bones most days of the week. You look at your life and it's that feeling that I don't want to live the way that I'm living now forever. It's that feeling that I want to change. I want to be different. I wish I didn't keep doing the things that bring guilt and shame to my heart and life. I want to experience cleansing. It's the question that really every world religion addresses, and even humanitarianism, humanism, it addresses it as well. How are you and I made right? How can we change? How can we be clean? And there's an innate sense in all of us that maybe it's possible. We see this universal sense of wanting to be clean, actually, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, where you see John the Baptist, and something's happening Something is obviously happening with him, and we see that all of Jerusalem and Judea are heading out to John the Baptist because they heard that God was doing something, and they thought that maybe they could change, that they didn't want to be the same. They looked at their lives, and they thought that maybe something better could be experienced. Maybe freedom from sin was possible. And so they go out to be baptized by John the Baptist. They go in droves to be cleansed by him with his baptism. And John the Baptist, if you go back to Mark chapter 1, said that I can only baptize you with water. All I can do is wash the outside. And it's meant to point to one who's coming after me, one who is greater than me, one whose sandals, he says, that I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. And this is what John the Baptist says. He says, I have baptized you with water, but the one coming is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to purify your hearts. He's going to cleanse your insides. That's what we want. That's what we ultimately need. 
Sure, we need good disciplines. We need to read our Bibles. We need to be regular in church. We need to pray. We need to give generously. But if you're not cleansed from the inside out, none of that matters. Jesus does not expose a problem that he cannot fix. In fact, it's exactly for this problem that he came into this world to make relationship possible between us and God. And in order to do that, he whose heart is pure, Christ whose heart is pure, is going to have to cleanse our hearts that are impure. And this great cleansing ultimately happens on the cross where Jesus takes on our pollution and he suffers our punishment that we deserve so that you and I might be made clean, so that you and I might enter into relationship with God. What happens on the cross is stated so beautifully by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus trades his purity for our defilement. Jesus comes and he wipes us clean. And by so doing, he himself has to become dirty. He experiences separation from God also that we might become pure. Only Jesus can come and cleanse us from the inside out. Only he can make our hearts clean. And as we understand that, as we begin to live more deeply in that reality, you and I are going to experience joy and life and freedom. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you have come to do what we could never do on our own. You're one who comes and addresses a problem that we have at a heart level. Oftentimes we are concerned with externals. We're concerned with what we're doing on the outside and you are concerned with what's happening on the inside. We thank you for the way that you've come to wash us clean through your spirit. We pray this morning that as we believe that more deeply, that you would change us from the inside out. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.